Yeah, our scripture reading from this morning um, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it was required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent Timothy, my beloved child and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. What does God want from you? If you had to sit down with a, with a pad and a pencil of paper and, and just write, what God wants from me, what would you write down? I mean, would God expect certain accomplishments from you in your career? Um, would you write about the number or quality of the friendships that you have? God expects you to have what? What would you fill in the blank? Would you write that God expects your, your kids to turn out in a certain way? Or, or maybe you think God doesn't really have that many expectations for me in my life, that he's just not that concerned um, about what I do day to day. God doesn't really expect anything of me. Does he want your, your money? Does he just want you to be a generally sort of nice and friendly person? Um, does he just want your Sunday mornings from like 10.07 to 11.13? Does he want your accomplishments, your success, your achievement? Does he want you to lead lots of people to Jesus? And if you're a Christian here this morning, 
I think this text, 1 Corinthians 4, should free you from the heavy demands of that question. Not because God expects nothing from you, but because I have a hunch that what God expects from you is something really different than what we often expect of ourselves. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think that this text will will give you a picture, a way of seeing life that might be more free, that might be more full of joy than the life you have now. So what does God want from us? If God is real, if he exists, what, what does he want from you and me? All God wants from you is faithfulness. All God wants from you is faithfulness. And I realize that sounds like a really churchy word, faithfulness. And it's a word that probably uh, didn't get you super excited when you heard it. But but trust me, there's power in what Paul is doing here. What he's going to show us in this passage. The life that he's pointing us to. And we live lives looking for success, looking for approval, looking for for ways to prove ourselves. Show that, that that we matter. And some of us are always comparing ourselves to, to other people and trying to measure how we're doing. Others of us feel like we never live up to our own standards, much less some standard that, that God has for us, that we're always falling short, that we're never good enough. But, but into that kind of cloud of noisy self-talk, of ambition and fear and, and worry and doubt, Paul speaks these words, all God wants from you is your faithfulness. Okay, so, so what is faithfulness, this churchy word? What does this really mean? What is, what is Paul talking about? What does faithfulness look like? And if we look into what Paul is saying here, we see that faithfulness is about knowing your place. It's about living before an audience of one. It's about redefining the good life. And, and it's also about following well. So if we, if we want to understand what faithfulness is, we have to, to know our place We have to live before an audience of one. We have to redefine the good life. We have to follow well. And so first, what what Paul shows us in verses one and two is is that the key to pleasing God and finding joy and a life of faithfulness is knowing our place. He writes this. He says, this is how you should regard us. He's speaking to the, the church at Corinth. He says, this is how you should regard me and Apollos as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And Paul is telling the Corinthian church that, that, that was obsessed with, with oration, with celebrity, with prestige. He's saying, don't think of us leaders in the church. Don't think of us as anything more than servants and stewards. He's saying, we aren't celebrities. We aren't professionals. We're servants of Christ. And we aren't owners of the estate. We're just simply managers I mean, to pick up on the images that Paul used in the text last week, we're just farmhands, just sowing seed. And while Paul, again, is speaking specifically here about himself and, and Apollos, another leader in the church, all Christians are servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. What is required of Christian leaders is, is what is required of all followers of Jesus. And what is required of servants and stewards is that they be found faithful. All God wants is your faithfulness. So this is really key to the whole passage, that that faithfulness to the master is what matters above all else. 
And it's not unlikely that, that Paul, as he's writing this part of his letter, uh, has the words of Jesus in his mind from Matthew chapter 25. And in the Gospel of Matthew, toward the end, chapter 25, Jesus is, is speaking about what life is going to be like when he is coming back when he brings his reign to fully into the world. And he tells about a parable, a story about a man who goes away on a journey and he leaves his servants in charge of his estate. And, and he gives each of them different amounts of responsibility. And when he returns and evaluates them, it, nobody says, it's from Matthew chapter 25, to those who have managed well, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What God wants is your faithfulness. And in order to be faithful, you, you have to know your place. You have to think of yourself as a servant, as a steward. So how do you view yourself? How would you tell others to regard you? As a servant or as a master? As an owner or as a manager? You see, and how can you tell? Because it's hard to do some, that, that processing. Like, how do we actually know how we view ourselves? Here's a couple ideas. Servants are humble. I mean, servants know it's not about them. It's about the master. The one that they've enlisted to serve. Servants are also free from crippling worry and fear. Because they know that the master is the one ultimately responsible. It's, it's his stuff. Uh, servants are also prayerful in the way that they deploy their time and their resources because they, they know it's ultimately not theirs. They, they know that the, that the car they buy, that choosing a neighborhood to live in, where they work, etc., it's not just up to their personal preference, but it's shaped by the contours of the owner's priorities and passions. Which leads us naturally to the second thing that Paul highlights here, and that is Essential to faithfulness is living before an audience of one. So, so Paul writes in verses 4 and 5, he says, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any other human court. In fact, I don't even judge my, myself, Paul says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now, Paul's not being defensive here. He's simply saying it doesn't matter what he thinks of himself or what anyone else thinks of him, because ultimately it's God's opinion that matters in the end. You see, only God can say whether we've really been faithful. So, so Paul is simply saying that all human judgments are premature in relationship to the final judgment of God. Why? Because only God can ultimately know what's going on inside of our hearts, inside of our minds. I mean, did you catch what Paul is saying there at the end of verse 5? He says, He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. I think that's one of the most sobering verses in the entire Bible. There will be a moment when everything I have done in secret, every wordless chewing out I've given someone, every absolutely selfish motive I've had for doing something seemingly 
good and selfless will be brought into sharp relief. And this is why Christians don't only repent of their bad deeds, but they also repent of their good deeds. Because we can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. You can do all the right actions on the outside with the absolutely rotten motives on the inside. And it's clear throughout the Bible, if you trace the storyline from Genesis to Revelation, that God cares not only about our external actions, but also the thought, intent, and motive behind those actions. So so it's not just enough to do sort of the right things externally. God looks and says, well, why, why are you doing them? What's the thought, the intention, the motive? So, so this is why Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount that, that uh, just having lustful thoughts is as bad as adultery. Or that being angry and hating someone is as bad as murder. Because it's not just about the action, it's about the thought, the intention, the motive. So those actions, while they have very different earthly consequences, they have the same eternal ramifications. So so this is why in order to live lives of faithfulness, as servants and stewards, we have to live before an audience of one. The one who sees the thoughts, the intentions of our heart. There's only one person whose opinion of us really matters. Just one. So whose approval are you seeking? Is every one of us, whether we, whether we like it or not, is a seeking someone's approval. And approval is one of the deepest root idols that, that all of us, I think, wrestle with. And, and every one of us is inclined, though some of us more to others, and I would put myself in this camp, to make approval of other people our functional savior, our functional God. And when this happens, basically we say, life only has meaning that I only have value if the right people love and respect me. Now those people might be different depending on on who you are and where you're at in your life. Those people might be your parents. So my life only has meaning and value if if my parents think well of me. Or if my kids think well of me, my coach or my boss or, or my ex-boyfriend or my, my classmates, my friends, my spouse, my girlfriend, my clients, my coworkers. And see, when you make approval an idol, when that becomes the functional thing that saves you, that rescues you, your greatest fear is going to be rejection. You're going to constantly be afraid that people will find something out or that you won't live up to their expectations and they're going to reject you. The people around you will often feel smothered because you're going to constantly be trying to, to understand how you can please them and get their approval and, and you're never really going to be able to tell them the truth and you're going to come off as swarmy. They'll feel smothered. And you're always going to wrestle with cowardice. Because you're, you're never going to have the, the courage to, to really say what you think or to stand up for what's right if, if you think that it's going to lose the approval of the people who matter in your life. But you see, the gospel, it frees us from all of that. The gospel frees us to live before an audience of one so that, that we're not beholden then to constantly the approval and opinions of those around us. Author and, and thought leader Os Guinness, and, and yes, he is related both to the beer people and the Book of World Record people. Um, he writes these, these words in his book, The Call. It's such a powerful statement. He says, living before an audience of one transforms all of our endeavors. 
This is why Christ-centered heroism does not need to be noticed or publicized. The greatest deeds are done before the audience of one, and that is enough. I love how he ends this. Those who are seen and sung by the audience of one can afford to be careless about lesser audiences. Those who are seen and sung by an audience of one can afford to be careless of lesser audiences. It's not that, that the other people's opinions don't matter, that you shouldn't worry about offending people or being kind to others, but on the ultimate sense, they are a lesser audience. Living before an audience of one liberates you from fear of rejection. It frees you to love other people rather than constantly seeking their approval. It replaces cowardice with a confident humility. Living before an audience of one means even the smallest, most hidden acts of obedience will be noticed and rewarded. Living before an audience of one empowers you to embrace uh, quality work that few people will notice. Living before an audience of one allows you to make difficult and costly choices that preserve your character and integrity and serve the good of others and the cause of the gospel. All God wants is your faithfulness. And this is where Paul goes next in the passage because he begins to, to unpack um, faithfulness because faithfulness often makes, means making difficult, costly, sacrificial choices. This means that, that faithfulness requires redefining the good life. And the first step in redefining the good life is recognizing that, that everything that you have is a gift. That you aren't owed anything by God or anyone else. Everything we have is a gift. And this is why Paul writes in verses 4 to 6, he, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? For what do you have that you did not receive? And he says, if then you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And when Paul says that you may learn not to go beyond what is written there, that idea of going beyond what is written refers to all the Old Testament passages that he's been quoting in the first three chapters of his letter and all those passages about how, how the futility of boasting before God. And then he asks three questions. He says, who, what, and why? First, he asks, who sees anything different in you? In other words, who in the world sees anything special in you? Um, as one commentator put it, the, the Corinthians, they are special, but they've forgotten that it, it's God who has made them that way, not themselves. And then he asks, what? What do you have that you didn't receive as a gift? Paul dares them. He says, what in your life can you point to one thing that isn't ultimately a gift from me, from God? And then Paul asks in light of that, why? Why then do you boast as though somehow you'd earned the good things in your life? There's a, there's, a great, uh, there's a great little children's book um, that I recently ran across um, based on this verse. It's called Fool Moon Rising. And I'd like to read just a little bit of it uh, for you um, this morning. It begins this way. Dear God, I heard a cosmic story and wondered if it's true. The moon was stealing glory and this is what he'd do. 
He bragged each night that he was gr- with his great might. He bragged each night that his great might could make the darkness flee. And then it ends this way. I love. I love this here. Skipping ahead. He'd boast away and love to say, I am the greatest light. Until one day a piercing ray showed him a shocking sight. He saw his pride and then he cried for all that he had done, for he had lied when he denied his light came from the sun. So now each night a new delight is what he loves the most, reflecting the light with all his might. The sun is now his boast. So God, I pray for grace each day to find the joy that's true in all my days and all my ways in making much of you. You see, we will never live lives of faithfulness. We we will never please God. We will never experience the joy we were made for, the good life we were designed to live until we see that everything we have is a gift. And, and this is because life in the, the breaking in kingdom of God and the time between Christ's first and his second coming, it's, it's marked by hardship and sacrifice. And, and if we have a sense of entitlement, a sense that we're owed something by God, then we're never going to endure. We're never going to be faithful because we're always going to be disappointed. Because during this time, right now, in the midst, while the world is still broken, faithfulness often looks like, appears from the outside, like failure. Just look at what Paul chronicles with biting irony, perhaps even a touch of sarcasm, in verses 8 through 13. Let me just read these again. He says, Already you have all you want, Corinthians. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles, as sent one leaders, leaders of the church, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ, apparently. We are, are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. We are reviled. When we revile, we bless. When persecuted, endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. In their arrogance and in their ignorance, the Corinthians think that they have arrived, that they are reigning, that the kingdom of God's already come, that they've got it all figured out. But the ones who truly know, the ones who have truly embraced the wisdom of the cross, Paul, Apollos, Timothy, the other church leaders, they are suffering greatly. Scholar David Garland puts it this way, Paul and Apollos live according to the wisdom of the cross. The Corinthians imbibe the wisdom of this age and pass themselves off as kings. How can they be so exalted if they receive their blessings through such lowly apostles? That's Paul's point here. How can you think you're so great when the very ones who gave you this gift are so lowly in the eyes of the world? And what Paul describes here is the life that Jesus lived and calls his apostles, the leaders, the planners of these churches, and also all of his followers to live. It's an upside-down life. 
a life uh, that chooses obedience that often leads to hardship rather than disobedience that leads to comfort. A life where the first are last and the last are first, where, where costly forgiveness trumps petty revenge, where selflessness beats back selfishness. I mean, really what Paul presents here is, is a robust theology of suffering. And one that's going to be really important for us as we go on in Paul's letter here in 1 Corinthians, because in the next six or, well, three to five chapters, Paul's going to take us through some hard stuff that's going to push us to go against the grain of the broader culture as it relates to relationships, sexuality, marriage, singleness, just to mention a few. And Paul is clear that, that all Christians and, and church leaders, perhaps especially so, will face hardship and suffering and even loss as they seek to faithfully follow the Savior, the one who has rescued them and called them to pattern their lives after the values and practices of the kingdom rather than the surrounding culture. This sort of faithfulness that Paul is talking about here often looks like failure. It often looks like failure. <laughs> it often looks like being regarded as the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message, he says, we are treated like garbage, potato peelings from the culture's kitchen. The Corinthians wanted Jesus but they also wanted prestige and power and success in the eyes of their culture. And Paul's just saying that those, those two, they just aren't compatible. You can't have those both as an ultimate goal. See, all God wants is your faithfulness. So the question for us is, what do we think success looks like? How do we define it for ourselves, for, for our children, um, for, our, for our teammates, for our friends? What does success look like? In the Christian life here and now, in, in this age in between, is not a gateway to comfort and ease and success. It is a call to come and die. It is a call to self-sacrificial service that yields joy through, not in spite of, but through suffering and hardship. And what Paul describes in these verses is, is the normal Christian life. I mean, we tend to think of suffering and hardship as abnormal, like, oh my word, something's happened, God must be angry, this is, something's wrong. No, Paul says that the times in life where things are going well and seem easy, those are actually, in the grand scheme of things, those are the, the sort of the abnormal times. We ought to expect suffering and hardship in a broken world of trying to live faithfully to Christ. I think a big area of those, for those of us who are parents, what are, what are your hopes for your kids? To have a good education, that they would be liked, that they would be popular? Find a good job? There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with those hopes, but is that how we implicitly or even explicitly define success for them? Or do they see faithfulness to the one who has made them and rescued them as the ultimate definition of success? I was recently really convicted of this in, in my prayers for, for Lucy, our daughter. Um, and this is part of my prayer list uh, for, for Lucy um, from my Evernote. And that top bullet, this is where I was really convicted, that top bullet was not at the top. 
it was down below everything else until about a month and a half ago. And I realized I was praying for her health and for her education and for her, her husband someday. And, and then, after all that, that she would be like Jesus. But what advantage is it to her if she's healthy, if she has a great education and, and a great husband, she, she's far from Christ? All God wants is your faithfulness. And it's not that any of those other things are bad. They are very, very good, very important. But when good things become ultimate things, they crush us and they will destroy you. We follow a crucified Messiah and all Christians are called to that vision of life and followership. Which leads us to the final aspect of Paul's, uh, Paul highlights here, um, the final aspect of faithfulness. That's following well. If we don't follow well, we won't finish well. If we don't follow well, we won't finish well. Uh, Listen again to what Paul writes in the final verses of, of chapter four here, beginning in verse 14. He says, I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed Remember, he's just gone through this paragraph of kind of sarcastic, almost ridicule of them. But to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. And I urge you then, be imitators of me, Corinthians. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and notice faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So what do you wish? Shall I come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And this is the moment where Paul, after giving him that kind of biting last paragraph, says, it's almost like that moment when, you, when your parents say, I'm not mad, I, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> right? He, he's not trying to shame them. He's trying to wake them up because he loves them as their father. And Paul is their father. They, they're supposed to look like him, but they don't. And this is why Paul sent kind of their older brother, Timothy, uh, to say, hey, remind them, this is what you're supposed to look like. This is how you're supposed to be. He says, imitate me, Corinthians, to follow him as he follows Christ. And this theme of following has been kind of sprinkled in all through these first four chapters uh, of the book. And if we don't follow well, we won't finish well. Now, now we might think that isn't it a little bit arrogant for Paul to say, follow me, imitate me, be like me. And I think it does strike us that way at first. But a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, Paul was literally the first Christian they had ever met. Um, this is the first, there's no New Testament. There's no, there's no um, you know, letters. That, he's writing them in the New Testament right now. It's not like there's a bunch of examples. There's only a few thousand Christians in the world at this point. There's not a lot of people Paul can point to and say, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So he calls them to, as he will put it later on in the letter in chapter 11, to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Why is this so important? It's so important because, see, the the Christian life is not just about precept. It's also about practice. It's not just about Bible information, just getting sort of the facts of this book into our hearts or our heads, but it's about gospel transformation here and now, really transforming the way we live. You see, the problem that the Corinthians had 
it, it wasn't intellectual apprehension of the gospel, of the facts. They knew the facts. It's that they, have, they haven't begun living out the implications of those realities in their lives. And this is why Paul says toward the end here that he's going to come to Corinth and find out whether they are all talk or if there's power with those who are boasting. Because the kingdom of God, the good news of the gospel, it's, it's not just advice, it is power that transforms. D.A. Carson, who's a professor at Trinity where I went to seminary, was a fantastic New Testament scholar. He, he puts it this way. He says, it's, this power is the power to forgive, to transform, to call men and women out of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear son. He says, mere talk will not change people. The gospel will. Mere talk will not change people. The gospel will. The power that comes through the Holy Spirit is the power that empowers faithfulness. Because Paul actually uses the same word for faithfulness that he uses here in Galatians, another letter he wrote in chapter five when he talks about the fruit of the spirit, that this is what happens when the spirit is controlling your life and filling your life. He says the the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Faithfulness is not just a matter of our own efforts. In fact, it's only possible in and through the power of God's spirit at work in us, allowing us to imitate those who imitate Christ. So the question is, who do we look like? Who are we imitating? If you were here uh, with us last week, um, you'll remember that with the help of some facial recognition technology at Face Plus Plus, we determined that I look exactly like Brad Pitt. Um, Yeah. You just can't. I mean, or Leo. I mean, neither one of them. Uh, you just can't miss it. <laughs> Paul said I had to bring that back this week um, when I asked the question, who do you look like? But this is a key question for each of us. Who do we look like? I mean, who have you patterned your life after? And kids look like their parents, not just physically, but, but in, in every way, in their mannerisms, their habits, their values, their speech patterns. I mean, already Lucy's only 14 months old, and it's really cool and also really scary to see how much that's true even now. So who are the people in your life that, that you look to and say, I want to follow Christ like they follow Christ? I mean, do you have those people? We need people living a life shaped by the values and passions of the kingdom of God to show us how to do that faithfully in our time and culture. And hopefully as your pastors, those of us at Christ Community on the pastor, hopefully to some extent we can be that in a broad general sense. But every one of us needs to help one another in our particular vocation and calling to understand what does it look like to be a faithful Christian mom or dad or engineer or video producer or or doctor or nurse or salesperson or musician or student. Because I don't know what it looks like to be a, a faithful architect. I mean, I have some ideas, but we need other architects. We need other nurses. We need other moms, dads to say, this is what it looks like in our vocation to live a life of faithfulness. We need one another. We need to share ideas. Who do you look like? All God wants 
is your faithfulness. You see, the great joy of pursuing a life of faithfulness as a Christian is that we know the verdict over our life is already settled. Because Paul wrote at the beginning, do you remember, he says he doesn't even judge himself, not, not because he's perfect, far from it, because he, he can't even fully, truly know his own heart and motives. He says, I, I don't think I have anything that I can point to, but I don't know my own heart. So only God can judge. And what is God's judgment? We see it in verse 5. But it's totally unexpected. Let me read verse 5 for us again. Paul says, Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. And then here's the utterly shocking and unexpected part, what Paul says next. Because at, at this point, scholars point out that, that what we would expect Paul to say after that sentence is something like, and at that time, God will rebuke each of us. At that time, each will receive his rebuke from God. But instead, Paul writes, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Commendation is not a word we use a lot. It's a very wooden translation. But the word means an act of expressing admiration, approval, praise, recognition. You see, in Christ Jesus, the Father looks at those who have trusted Christ and he says, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son with who I am well pleased. In the end, Christ, in him, you and I, we become, we who are rebels against God become objects of his praise and delight. He will rejoice over you in Christ. All God wants is your faithfulness. And thanks be to God that he is faithful even when we are faithless, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so thankful that your verdict over my life, over the life of everyone who has trusted Christ, is one of praise and delight and admiration. Help us to know that.